And uh, well, we got we got some people uh, who are already popping in comments. We've got uh, Nuvi saying, "I'm here," uh, accusing us of being late. We're we're right on time. We're we're right in here. Don't worry about us. All right, people are filing in, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start things off, and we're gonna get the show on the road. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. Well, awesome. Uh, welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us live. Uh, today, I'm joined with by uh, Greg Griesmer, right? Did I pronounce that it. correctly? That's it. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and and Greg, we're, we're going to be talking about some HR stuff today with respect to people and hiring and change and everything. Why don't uh, you give everyone an introduction of yourself and uh, let us know how you came to be involved in, in the world of, uh, of human resource projects? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, and and I'll start. Uh, I'll try to make it quick, but I'll start from the beginning. I always uh, think it's an interesting uh, uh, story. No one really, uh, I think, designs their career to 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 get into recruiting. You don't graduate college and say I'm going to be a recruiter. So, uh, like most people, I fell into recruiting. I answered an ad that said, you know, are you good with people? Uh, have no marketable skills and want to make a lot of money. And so <laughs> to me, uh, they all sort of checked the box coming out of college. I decided not to go to law school um, and found my way into a, uh, to a, to a career in agency uh, recruitment or, or headhunting uh, in, some, in some circles, as it's known. Uh, spent some time there and then took a, a corporate town acquisition job with, uh, with Johnson & Johnson. Uh, spent a, a, good, a good portion of my career at J&J &J, uh, leading a, a variety of different teams. You know, when I started there, um, there were uh, maybe 30 of us focused on uh, one state in the U.S. When I left, we were across, there were 250 of us, you know, across 18 different countries. So picked up a lot of uh, great uh, experiences related to process and uh, and what quality processes can do for you. You know, first sort of uh, formal introduction to change management there. Uh, led some town acquisition teams at other healthcare firms along the way, and then found my way into a, a head of HR job with a specialty generic pharmaceutical company that was um, owned and operated by a family for over 100 years. Um, as that family looked to exit that business and start a healthcare technology spinoff, I saw an opportunity to take the experiences that I had uh, gathered throughout my career, bring them down market into the small business segment, uh, specifically focusing on life sciences and, uh, and technology uh, companies, uh, really to help them with HR in a, in a different way. So uh, that's a bit of a hyperspeed version of, of how I got to, to be where I am today, David. Well, and, and you and I connected and had a conversation mm -hmm. because a lot of that experience um, was related to uh, mergers and acquisitions activity yes. and sort of the changes that come as a response to that. And, and I thought it would be great to talk with you about that stuff in addition to just I'd like to also talk a little bit about hiring in general and retention in, in the marketplace today. But uh, can you define for people what is meant by the term change management? 
Yeah, I mean, to to me, uh, you know, change change management really is is uh, is is about. I mean, it's it's almost as straightforward a definition as you can come up with. It is about managing, you know, the process of change. So, how do you take an individual from the point of introducing a change or introduction, you know, up the change curve to where that is institutionalized or just part of the way that that individual you know operates? And so, there are a variety of different you know strategies, some more formal, uh, some less formal, uh, and behaviors that you want to look for at each step of the way as well. And so when you introduce a change to humans, they, they don't really enjoy it that much. Most people don't. Some have more of a tolerance than others. Um, and then you want to look for certain certain behaviors and responses from them as you uh, as you move them up the curve. So, you know, you developed a lot of your experience in the big uh, corporate world. You mentioned mm -hmm. Johnson & Johnson, so we're talking about a large company. And one of the one of the things that I often notice is a big difference between large companies and small companies is that in, in a small company, you often just don't have all the specialized practitioners with their eye on their own specific, you know, um, set of responsibilities within the business. And so a lot of the times when I think about change in a smaller business, I think about an owner uh, deciding to make a change, pushing that forward and then probably realizing after the implementation that some sort of change management was probably apropos that needs to be addressed in some way. Whereas in, in, a, in a big company, you know, there'd be people who are actually thinking all the time about, for example, human resources who might say, this proposal is going to require some us to manage this change. Can you speak a little bit about the, to the difference between what happens a lot with smaller companies versus the big world, big corporate world? Yeah, I think uh, I think you um, I, th I think you hit the nail on the head there, right? So so there's uh, there's a tendency to move faster in small businesses and not want to overcomplicate things, right? And change management can sometimes be seen as um, an unnecessary overcomplication of uh, of something that just needs to get done. So you're a small business owner, you're saying, look, I don't have a lot of time to be thinking through this. This is a change I know is going to be right for the business that I know is going to have the right long term impact, um, and then you just put it into place. I think, you know, there's uh, in larger companies, you to, to your point, you've got uh, a multitude of people that are surrounding that change. You're thinking about, OK, let's take a look at what uh, upstream and downstream impacts this change is going to have. Right. How should we communicate it to all stakeholders? They're going to take some time to touch in with all the stakeholders and gather different perspectives um, and 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 then build a uh, build a plan for how to take them again from that introduction up through uh, institutionalization uh, and it's just it's just a very different uh, uh, pace of change as well right some changes in large organizations will take years uh, before they take hold uh, or at a minimum months where small businesses I think are looking for things uh, to happen much much faster than that so hey this is going to get done today I'm going to start to see the impact of that change uh, within uh, within a matter of 30 days or so or, or or even less some people need it to to, to, to be a matter of weeks and so um, but i think there are lessons though that you can pull from the larger companies you know down uh down into small businesses as well uh without the the the, the length of time needed to process through the change do, do you find sometimes with smaller businesses there's a hesitation about the investment um and and whether the investment makes sense in something like hr where it's 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 a lot maybe harder to to measure the return on on what the costs would be with respect to implementing some of these um, efforts. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's uh, we we typically get called in uh, to 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 help businesses that are forward thinking and uh, I think understanding the uh, the value of professionalizing HR or to business owners who have some sort of pain or ache on their body that they just want to uh, uh, to stop. And so uh, so there is uh, always though a, uh, a a cost to to value conversation that that needs to occur. And I think, you know, in those situations, I always encourage uh, small business owners, small business leaders to be thinking about, you know, the impact to their employees and the employee productivity, right? And so you want to get the HR function right. You want to get change management right, because every uh, moment that that employee spends under uh, 120% of their effort being focused on the small business's time uh, and and uh, and goals uh, is, is, is energy and effort that, uh, that you can't afford. And so uh, if a change lands wrong on them because you didn't contemplate something that, um, you know, uh, is, is, is very impactful to them. Right. If they felt like they should have a voice, but they uh, they didn't have a voice. Um, you know, these are all things that just take away from productivity and engagement and cost the business money in the long run. So you spend it kind of in one place or the other, you know? Yeah. Well, listen, I can remember back in days when I was in corporate jobs where we would have some kind of announcement where something would be decreed upon us and we'd all go back to our cubicles and spend the rest of the afternoon talking about how stupid the management decisions were and not getting anything done, you know, yep. towards any of the goals that, that we had in front of us, we would just be griping and complaining, um, you know, so I understand exactly what you're talking about. I mean, the team is supposed to be all hands on deck all the time, working towards the goals. Now, we mentioned earlier that a big change would be, for example, uh, the acquisition of a business. So mm -hmm. if, if, and that's what we talk about on this channel. So if someone is planning on acquiring a business that has employees, what should they be looking at from the point of view of diligence in examining that company if they want to think about employees and how the the change might be felt uh, or experienced by those people? Yeah, no, and, you know, one of the, the the first and most obvious, and I think this is going to be one of the first thing that goes into a data room to look at is, is the company org, you know, structure, right, and org chart. So if I'm in an, a business that is acquiring, and you're acquiring another business that has, uh, I'm an HR manager, right, and you're acquiring somebody that has an HR director, that's immediately going to impact me, right? Well, okay, wow, here they're getting, we're now getting a skill set in here that's a notch or two above mine, right? So I think you do absolutely want to look at the uh, the org structure. You want to look at the leadership team members. You want to look at the quality of the leadership team members. Uh, you also want to do, I think, due diligence around uh, culture. Uh, and you know, to me, culture is an amalgamation of the behaviors of all the individuals in the given business that you would be acquiring in this uh, in this example. And so, um, you know, how uh, what what behaviors are valued? there? How well defined are those behaviors? Do they have the counter behaviors defined as well so that every employee in that firm that you're acquiring understands what good looks like, but also what 
unacceptable uh, behaviors look like as well. Um, you know, I've uh, I've been uh, a part of conversations in both in, in large uh, companies and small companies around, you know, um, uh, companies that are just uh, on the acquisition, uh, they're slated for acquisition and, and you you abandon it because the culture, uh, the culture fit is so different, right? You've got a command and control versus a, uh, a consensus uh, based culture. You know, how do you bring those, how do you bring those two together? Sometimes it's, it's too much to, to consider or think about, right? So, so in that example, then what is the, what is the danger? What, what is the concern that, that makes someone say, you know, this money will be wasted or this, this deal will not achieve any advantages because of this huge gulf between the two cultures. I mean, I, I guess it would, it would depend on whether the goal was to integrate the new operation into the existing one, or maybe if they were, you know, in two different jurisdictions doing two different things, it, it might be an easier bridge uh, chasm to golf or bridge to golf to bridge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I think, uh, you know, as you as you look at uh, the businesses uh, coming together, are they going to even be able to operate as two standalone, you know, businesses and, and come together around the table? Yeah, I was part of a large uh, acquisition uh, in, in my corporate days. And it was it, it, what, what struck us as we showed up to the integration meetings was, you know, one uh, company that I was with was perpetually late five to 10 minute meeting, you know, starts after the actual start, no problem. The other culture was there two minutes beforehand. They would end their, uh, they would end their meetings 10 minutes early so they could get to where they were going. And you started the meeting off every time with irritation on both sides, right? And so you had to overcome this period of irritation before you could actually even get into anything, uh, anything productive. And so, um, you know, as you, uh, as you think about uh, these, uh, the, the, the two businesses coming together, you know, what is the likelihood that the people that are there are going to be able to, uh, to work together? Right in a in a in a uh, in a productive uh, and uh, and meaningful way, uh, or is it going to be a case to where you're going to be needing to think about replacing so much of the population of one company or the other that it just becomes um, you know detrimental to the to the value of the business? Right, there's institutional knowledge there that needs to be kept for a period of time. There's uh, transitions that need to occur for a period of time, uh, and this just uh, further compounds the uh, uh, the the difficulty uh, in in bringing this together, hitting your synergy targets, and you start you start missing those, you know, on a regular basis when the collaboration isn't there between the two sides. Sometimes when uh, when I'm working with a buyer who's looking at a business, one of the concerns that they'll have is that there's either a seller or a key employees that have some very specific technical skills, mm -hmm. uh, and this obviously is worrisome to them. And I, and I'll point them sometimes to going out and looking at the labor marketplace and say, you know, are, are there people out there with some kind of certification or is there like a college program that churns out people that do this specific job? You know, what what is the pipeline like of people out there who can do that work? If you ever needed to go and hire, what, you know, would would you be confident that you'd be able to find someone? Uh, you ever look at that kind of stuff when it comes to, to HR diligence and just uh, seeing well, sort of what the the bench depth is, or or the the what the labor pool is like outside the organization. If you do have to have some churn, 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, in addition to looking outside, a quick look inside to start, I like to say, do you have the, you know, if the captain's going to, you know, get thrown overboard at some point or jump overboard, do you have a second lieutenant that can sort of step in, steer the ship into port so you can pick up your next, uh, you know, captain? And so I think that quick look inside to just understand, you know, where the uh, redundancy and overlap is uh, to start is good. Um, but but absolutely, you know, recruit there's a, a, a large number of recruiting firms that can go out and do, you know, market uh, market research for you or a market sort of assessment for you without uh, and at a fraction of the cost as to what some uh, some larger firms will do to, you know, to put you through an entire process. But they can do sort of just a quick check on the market to say, yes, these skill sets exist or, or, or no, they don't. But uh, yeah, absolutely a great idea in addition to that quick look inside to see if you've got any backup uh, you know, candidates at all that could could, uh, could could keep things moving. What, what are some of the some of the big HR surprises that uh, that some people uncover when they do an acquisition? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, uh, sort of just the the history, you know, one of the things I think is always helpful to look at is the history of um, uh, compliance related uh, issues that you might have. So do you have a large number of worker compensation claims? Do you have a large number of, um, you know, complaints that are coming from regulatory agencies or bodies that might speak uh, volumes about the type of environment, uh, work environment that uh, that you'd be uh, acquiring as well. So I think spending some real good time understanding the history that's there, not just do you have anything that we are going to be assuming as part of the deal? But what's what's the last three, maybe even five years sort of look like? And are there, you know, trends here that we, we should just be aware of that um, uh, or is it just a couple blips on the radar? OK, and we might be assuming a couple of those. But I think you want to look at trends in the compliance area for sure. There's been some uh, some surprises that, uh, again, sort of after the fact surprises, not not the best to get so. What what can um, what can we infer by looking at sort of the, the 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 tenure of the current employees? Oftentimes, we're not able to interview people because of the confidentiality of the transaction, but we can get a list that says, you know, here are some people. This is what they do. This is how long they've been there. What what should we be looking for in that kind of information? To and what what kind of uh, um, indicators might exist in that information that could cause us to go looking for other other bits of information yeah retention to me is always and turnover is a, is a double-edged sword right um exactly. you know long tenured employees can sometimes be some of the most painful uh people to deal with right so uh so you 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 want that uh, you want that consistency sometimes right but there's there's behaviors there um you know as the company's grown matured and scaled to a different uh you know level these these folks may have started in one area of the business and had an outsized role and and an outside voice and over time sort of lost that right and so uh, so i always caution to say you know uh, having consistency and long tenured employees is not you know on the surface something that you should just say is a, is, is is a good thing um and but i do think that's what you want to you want to look at so that's a sign for instance and a signal to say okay wow everyone's been here for 15 years 
there's not, you know, what's your turnover? 1.5%. Okay, well, why is that, right? Let's start looking at, is it because you're overpaying your people in the market? And that's going to be the expectation. Is it because the benefits plans keep evolving each year? And there, so, so what, you know, one of the signals around tenure and turnover is what expectations has the company and the culture sort of created that you're now as the acquirer going to be responsible for, for maintaining, or if you don't maintain it, it's going to be such a shock that you're going to have engagement uh, and retention issues, and 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 then you're causing a whole other set of uh, set of concerns. Um, I also think there's one other thing I would look at is you know if if you have higher turnover but you've been able to to fill these jobs, well, okay, so so how is your brand playing? How is that that company's brand that you're acquiring playing in the market? You know, to attract people. Okay, maybe some positive stories there, but you know you're you're lining them up to come into a home and a house and an environment where something is not right. So they're going right out the other side. And so again, to me, the, you're, you're looking at uh, signals around culture, around engagement, around, you know, uh, uh, leadership as well. Um, and so, uh, you know, hopefully as part of this process, you can get some sense of, uh, of leadership, even by uh, uh, just through, um, you know, uh, interviewing a few, a few senior members uh, of the, t uh, of the company that you're acquiring. So. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, from a, from a market, and sales point of view, people often look at the brand and they look at the position in the market and how customers are, you know, perceive that company. But I'm not certain if people really also think about it in terms of the labor market, because of course companies have, you know, brand strength and reputations in the labor market too. Um, you know, I've I, I've spoken, for example, with uh, you know newly graduating people that were looking for work before, and then you know they will tell you that they have preferences for one company over another, for example, where they'd like to work. And without any experience in their industry, I mean, this has clearly all been painted by some kind of feeling or or uh, branding that's been done that that makes them feel that that's the place they want to go. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, your employment brand to me is 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 uh, is just as important as your sales and marketing brand. And and the two um, the two should should connect. Right. To me, you want that message continuity. What you're saying to um, to a customer, we're a transparent organization. Right. But then you talk to employees and like they don't tell us anything. Right. I mean, then you're saying sort of one thing on the sales and marketing side that you're not living on the culture and engagement side. And so those two should be connected and further supported by your employee value proposition, which is essentially what does everyone say about why they come to uh, come to work here? And I think the employment brand is something you protect like that golden, uh, that golden egg uh, just as much. I use an example with a lot of my clients is a picture a glass of water. You know, every bad candidate review now that somebody decides to go out and post on social media because you treated them poorly in the uh, in the interview process is like a little drop of oil. Some people say, well, one drop, I can't drink that that glass of water. Others will say, well, maybe one or two, I'll drink a little bit of that water, right? And it's okay. But but you do really have to protect it, not only because of, uh, it's going to impact your business, but these people also that you're interviewing and not hiring um, or hiring and then leaving, there are still shareholders potentially if you're uh, publicly yep. held or you're thinking about um, an IPO at some point in time. These are folks, if you're in the consumer goods space that are purchasing your products or advocating for your products out there in the market. And with social media, it's easy to sort of just pop off a, a negative review uh, as it is. It's just something you really want to be careful with. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, now, you said that you work with a lot of, you know, sort of biotech type companies in, in, in helping them with their projects. Can you just sort of give us an idea of, of what um, kind of business you're typically working with and what their what their projects would entail as, as far as uh, recruiting and hiring work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we we uh, we we specialize in the life science and technology verticals uh, with uh, with startup uh, stage companies. So uh, all of our clients, uh, except maybe one or two here or there, are under uh, fifty employees, and uh, in the process of really looking to build uh, and manage a, a sound infrastructure. I like to joke with a lot of our uh, a lot of my friends, a lot of our clients. Even we're really good at helping you build a basement and sort of live in it for a while until you're ready to uh, to start to add some floors, you know, onto uh, onto the house. And so, you know, we we come in early, typically where there's been some operator, uh, finance, uh, and or uh, sales and marketing CEO. Uh, maybe you, you have a COO in some cases that have built the HR infrastructure and hiring infrastructure, you know, up to a certain point and now recognize the need to professionalize it, or it started to cause them such outsides pain that when they're ready to go to market for a raise or ready to get ready for an IPO, they have a, um, uh, a real, uh, issue with what risk might be uh, lying around that they're just not not sure of. And so we're brought in to sort of shore up the infrastructure or build the infrastructure in advance of uh, a scaling or uh, some sort of financing uh, event. And so um, those projects could be advisory. So David, maybe just you know me and that's it. Uh, it could be where you and your entire leadership team knows me and I sit on that leadership team and I work on uh, a strategic roadmap and we've got HR projects that are with the rhythm of the business and the growth strategy of the business, you know, all the way out to uh, full outsource solutions where we are known as HR to all employees and we're handling everything for you. We're running payroll, we're uh, executing uh, the benefits open enrollment, we're handling all the benefits questions, we're uh, helping with hiring strategy, we're interviewing, so it's so really kind of end-to-end -end, uh, HR. So the, what I find interesting about about that and, and what i think is probably one of the challenging things and then maybe this is why they're bringing you in as an expert is that you're talking about companies that really don't have a big track record mm -hmm. they are small businesses you know they're, they're you said they're a couple dozen employees but in this space they're obviously looking for very skilled talented people that are going to be bringing the enthusiasm and and know-how into build, you know, solving important problems to to help the company grow in whatever way it's going. So so what are some of the things that that what are some of these um, what are some of the strategies you might employ to be able to get such great people? Um, because I'll tell you, one of the things I often hear from in the world of small business is that small business feels that they have a hard time competing with big business to get the best quality people. Yeah. And, and you're obviously getting great quality people that are willing to work in these smaller environments. So what are some of those secrets? Yeah, you know, I think the, the first is the story, right? You've got, you've got to have your story uh, down 
down pat, right? You want to, uh, how are you selling the company? This gets back to that employment brand conversation. And so mm-hmm. you want to, you want to really, uh, look, and, and also have a comfort, um, you know, David, that this opportunity that you're selling is not for everyone and not to try to make it fit everyone. Like when I started my firm a couple of years ago, I, I just took every, I was like, yeah, Hey, we can do HR for everyone. Right. That got us some clients that, you know, we wish we never would have worked with. Right. And, uh, if they're listening today, I apologize, right? If you're not uh, no longer with us, it's not necessarily you that I'm talking to, but um, you know, you you don't want every candidate either, right? And so it took me a while to get to that place where I say, hey, I don't want every client, and you shouldn't want me either, right? So I think that's the first is do we have a good story that's going to resonate with the right type of person, right? I remember when I first started um uh recruiting and uh we were selling uh, at the time, I think it was shearing plow. A big company was under consent decree and we, we needed validation engineers to go in there. But it was sort of and the way we pitched is like this is like a job for somebody that, that thinks they're Superman. Right. They have this outsized ego like I can go in and fix this. And everyone else was like, man, they're under consent decree. I'm not leaving my good, cushy job in another big pharma to go over there. They might not make it out of consent decree. Right. And so that what was, is that? What is consent decree? So it's a regulatory uh, limitation on uh, okay. the, the the pharmaceutical manufacturer, and so um, so it was a, it, it it's it's a severe enough uh, limitation that that companies uh, you know uh, may may not recover from it. Right. And so so you had these folks that would need to go in there with this outsized ego to say, I can fix it. That that's who we were after. So as we were pitching this job, it was like, look, David, this may be you. If it's not you, maybe you're uh, you know, those people down the hall from you. So you've got to be comfortable with the story that you're telling, that you're that you're selling about your 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 company. And you've also got to be very comfortable hearing a large number of people say, that's not me. Why would I leave my uh, and and, and I've seen more small business feel like they've got to sort of pitch uh, pitch the equity piece or the cash out piece or the home run. But that's not it. Sometimes you've just got people like me. I was one of these folks before I started my own firm that just love to build. They just want to get in and be part of, of sort of building something. So I think it's one, know your story, you know, two, you know, know your audience, I think. And then when they when you are able to get those people inside, spend time, you know, with them after they get here. So we, one of the, 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 uh, the strategies that we employ regularly um, is stay interviews. We think they're so important, right? Just to touch in with people 30, 60, 90 days in, and then every 90 days thereafter, once a quarter, just to have the HR team, you know, we'll, we'll do these often, just touch base and build the, continue to build the relationship with the employee, but find out what's working, find out what's not working, you know, take that in a, um, in a blinded way and report back to senior leadership on that. So they have a little bit more of the voice of the people. I think in smaller companies, it's amazing, just like in large companies, how the voice of the people, right? You know, you don't really have a Lorax there, right? If anybody likes that movie that speaks for the trees, right? And so you've got to get that voice sort of up somehow. Um, and that's helpful as well around retention and ensuring that you're you're really able to put programs in place that matter. So yeah, uh, you're 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 talking about HR and recruitment the way you know people often talk about sales. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like like um, I know that in, in uh, some of my background in sales and when I've talked with some of my clients about sales, uh, I'll, I'll talk about how a no is one of the quick things you want to get to or or you want to disqualify more than you want to qualify. Because if you can see how 
that potential, that prospective customer is not a fit for your product. It means that you can stop spending time with them. You can move on to, to where you're more likely going to make a sale. And that's, that's exactly what you're describing, isn't it? It's, mm -hmm. it's figuring out who the right candidate is and then focusing on that person and not, uh, you know, again, from sales, we talk about, you know, commission breath. Like if you come across as too needy, like you need to make a sale, you know, that's kind of repellent to to people in a way. And it's the same thing with hiring. If you're just trying to to, to be alluring to everyone. And, and I've seen people, you know, before try with the stock options and all that kind of stuff and offering equity in their firms. And yeah. and one of the things that I'll say is like, are like, are you sure that you're not just projecting what's important to you onto these prospective people? Because if someone's in the employment market, if they're out there trying to sell their time to get a paycheck, um, well, to me, that's an indicator that they may not be an entrepreneurial person. They may not be interested in, in equity and ownership. They're, they're looking for a salary. That's the way they want to monetize their time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If, if the uh, if the financials are the big driver for why someone's looking to come from a, a big company to a small company, go the other way. I mean, I've negotiated so many of these packages from uh, big pharma down into the, the biotechs and people are like, well, hey, look, I'm leaving a pension. So here's how I monetize my pension. And I want you to replace that. I'm like, no, that you're sort of missing the point here, right? This is not about trying to keep you whole to go from your big company to your small company. You want to do this for a very different reason or, and it's okay if you don't, you probably know someone that does want to do that, right? And so yeah. um, it's, it's funny that you mentioned, I mean, that's how I was taught. So I mentioned, I answered that ad, you know, out of school. When I showed up for that interview, he said, you know, do you know uh, why you're here? And I said, uh, no, he said, it's for a recruiting job. And he said, but I'm not going to teach you how to recruit. He said, I'm going to teach you long-term consultative selling, where the relationship is at the center of everything that you do. And that's how I sort of come and I came up through uh, and into recruiting. And so um, I approach everything, you know, that way, even on the HR side, I think it's just as important when you're introducing a employee benefit change, when you're introducing a new performance management solution, when you're introducing a new system that you're expecting these people to log their time in, right? You've got to do a little selling there, right? And uh, I think sometimes small business owners and executives forget that. I mean, these are master sellers. That's why they've been able to start and build businesses. That's why they're in the operator roles they're in or in the, the financial roles they're in or in the CEO roles they're in. Like use a little of that, uh, that charisma and selling strategy uh, inside your own walls, right? Not just outside. So, um, you know, in the online discussions that I'm a part of, you know, people uh, having conversations on Twitter and things like this. What, what I'm seeing is that, um, you know, obviously during, uh, during 2020, during that whole lockdown period and everything, we had more and more people working from home. And now mm -hmm. in, since then, we've had different companies take different stances on where they want the employees to be. I'm seeing a lot of people, a lot of smaller companies embracing the uh, either work from home or hybrid work styles at, uh, and really being able to recruit and take away from some of the more established firms that, that want to get back to that office environment who aren't willing to be as flexible. What, what's your take on this whole shakeout of, of more flexible work conditions? I mean, what, where, where do you think the opportunities are and who do you think is at risk of really losing the best people? 
Yeah, no, I, I so so I think I've been seeing a lot of the uh, of the same, uh, right? So you've got now this is another variable when you're out in the talent marketplace. It's not just sort of tell me about the job and tell me about the compensation and tell me about the location. Now it's about tell me about the location. Oh wait, you want me in the office one day a week? No, I dress like this. I just wear a V-neck. I've got shorts on, or maybe I don't have shorts on. Maybe I got pajama pants on, right? It doesn't really matter because you should be focused on what I'm doing and getting done and the outcomes and the and the productivity that I have, not kind of what I look like and where I am and kind of can you see me, right? And so you've got this other variable that comes into play up front. And I think we are seeing, I've got some biotech companies that just want to get back to the office. The only reason the entire company does not want to, but you've got a CEO or a senior member of the team that feels like this is just the way it should be. We got to get away from this nonsense where everyone works from home. And they have this old school mentality around sort of management by walking around. And if I can't see you working, you're not working. Those are the, the firms that I feel like are, are at, uh, in a small business segment that are an out, uh, at an outsized risk of, uh, of, of, of losing people. You know, the others are uh, individuals that go into do you do you think that that attitude is strictly generational or do you think there are people in every cohort of age that that has that same attitude I've seen it across every uh, every cohort so I've seen it you know down you know across three or even four generations of uh, of, of CEOs that just feel like I need to see you uh, to get uh, to get a sense that you're doing what you should be doing yeah yeah. Okay. yeah. I think another another one I'd add in there is individuals that try to execute a hybrid work strategy that's uh, that's not that's not thoughtful or planned. Right. And so there's so many layers to working in a hybrid environment. Um, are you asking me to come into the office, David? So I just sit on Zoom with my colleagues that are at home. Why am I in the office, right? Um, are you asking me to come in and be part of mixed use calls where some people are on phones, some people are on videos, some people are live, and there's sidebar conversations? The old the old conversations used to be so annoying when everyone was around the conference table for that one person that was on the phone in their car. Right now, they can't hear because there's so many sidebar conversations around the table. Yeah. So, um, and that's just scratching the surface on it, right? Uh, but but I think if you if you move into the hybrid uh, work environment, that's great, right? And that's that's a uh, a step ahead of those that are making the full return to office, but make sure it's thoughtful. Make sure you've given some, some, um, you know, uh, some purposeful uh, planning. You have some purposeful planning as well before you just sort of pull the trigger and say, we're going to start coming back two days a week. Is everyone coming back two days a week? That's not bad, right? Okay. So every single person is coming in on Wednesday and Thursday, and we have this space to fit them. Oftentimes what I see too is companies have grown over the last two years um, because, and, and so they can't fit everyone in the same space that they have now. And so they're trying to do this, this sort of staggered schedule. Um, it, it's interesting because I, I lived through um, an interesting um interesting time uh well in, when i was in a corporate job uh years ago and they had uh they had a large space that was meant to accommodate a couple thousand people and over the course of time the headcount had shrunk and it was a it was a leased location and when they came to the end of their lease they said well you know let's go to the back to the drawing board and they ended up choosing a completely different location so they're going to move the business to another place and they ended up taking a couple of floors on a tall office tower and um, the overall footprint was much reduced um, and they decided to go to a hybrid work environment and they and they basically they were even rationing parking. They were saying oh, to wow. people like the person that was two levels above me 
who normally would go into the office every day of the week at the old location was told you are you have a parking spot on Tuesdays and Thursdays if you want to come to the office any other days and that you have to pay for your own parking wow. and 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 they were able to make it work and and people you know kind of um, decided to create their own meetings and stuff based on who was in the office and all this sort of thing and um, and it settled out okay but that company realized that they would be able to get away with a lot smaller space if they were willing to to be more flexible and and that this was year this was six years before the pandemic so um, mm -hmm. I know that it can work and, and I know that there are definitely advantages because once you free people from the obligation I mean I can't tell you how many stories I've heard from business owners who sent their employees home in 2020 and then in 21 or 22, tried to get them back. And then only then learned that some of those people had moved away Yeah, yeah. And, and were not physically in the city anymore, but had still been executing their job just fine. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and so I, I really think there's an opportunity here too, for people that are willing to, to be a little more flexible. Have you, have you seen people successfully build cultures and teams from scratch virtually or yes. is there a certain holdover culture that you see because the argument i hear from people that want people back in the office is they say how can we build our culture if we're not together all the time mm -hmm. well again culture to me so i'll just add one point on what you were saying earlier the one thing i would also encourage folks to look at is look back over the last two years three years and really give a good hard look at examining the productivity that you've seen, uh, the productivity increase that I'm pretty sure you've seen in terms of your ability to set and achieve, you know, goals and objectives for the organization. That is a direct. There's a direct correlation there to uh, to the to the time that's being spent in uh, at the desk in lieu of the commute. Right. And so as you think about bringing people back, just take a good I've heard from so many of our clients and so many potential clients about the uh, the 10 to 15 percent productivity increase that they feel like they've got because they're getting an extra hour on the front end and an extra hour on the back end of people that can just walk downstairs to be with their family instead of get in the car and drive an hour to be back with their family. And so um, so so I would say that uh, just just to add on what you were saying earlier. But, yeah, I've seen and, and actually we've we've helped uh, several clients build uh, successful uh, successful teams and cultures virtually. Again, to me, culture is about the behaviors that you're expecting and accepting, more importantly, within your work environment. So that extends to whether it's you and I here on camera, David, it's you and I on phone, or it's you and I on, in, in person. I do think there is an argument to be said around the social engagement to strengthen the virtual relationships that are being built. But again, that's got to be done purposely. Right? Are you bringing your teams together so that they can socially connect? And wow, David, I've never met you, but now I get to shake your hand, and we get to have um, a sort of a team building activity that you know uh, may or may not involve alcohol, right? Um, but you, you, I'm now just able to put that face with the name, and you know, oftentimes the jokes we hear is like wow, you're that tall or you're that wide or you're that skinny, right? And so just because you, you, it's hard to tell on camera what people really look like. The camera is, you know, either helpful or hurtful to some people. And so, um, so those sort of social interactions and engagements can strengthen the culture that you're building, but it's really about being, being um, purposeful about defining the behaviors that you want to see from your employees, regardless of where these people are uh, and, and where they're working from. Mm. Oh, I think this is great. 
Um, we have a few comments here. Kevin, uh, who joins us from Central Florida, says, good afternoon. Hey, Kevin, how are you today? Uh, Concise Advice wants to know, Greg, do you have any uh, books you can recommend or classes on change management? Yeah, you know, off the top of my head, and this is uh, this is the one place where, you know, honestly, it's uh, it's something that I'd like to spend some more time on is just more formal change management methodologies and strategies. I was I was taught uh, at Johnson and Johnson by someone, and it was really a focus on you know uh, on planning, on stakeholder management and engagement, um, on communications, and on identifying the behaviors that you would see sort of as you move people up the change curve. And so it was a little bit more of, you know, guerrilla change management, honestly. And so um, I do have some colleagues, though, that uh, are experts in the space. And I'd be glad to uh, to share those back with you, David, to share with the audience uh, and post in a, in a forum uh, afterwards. Yeah. Well, come come on afterwards onto, the, onto YouTube and just put it in the comments down below. Okay, great. I will do that. Definitely. Awesome. Um, so, Greg, uh, if people are interested in learning more about you or connecting with you, you know, what's the what's the easiest way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. On LinkedIn as well. You know, I'm a, an open uh, an open uh, networker and uh, and invite everyone to connect with me there. Uh, you can email me at uh, at Greg at 1130.works as well. And so just G-R-E-G at 1130.works. And I'll post those in the comments uh, as well and just different ways that you can get in uh, get in touch with me. But um, I think some of the... Uh, uh, some of the confusion sometimes when you have consultants hanging around is that we bill for everything. I do a lot of gratis work with small businesses. Just people are saying like, hey, when do I even need to talk to somebody like you? Or And that doesn't mean I'm going to send you a bill for 15 minutes worth of work or 30 minutes worth of work. But, um, you know, so I invite people to reach out all the time. I'm also just a huge fan and paying it forward. I've got a very sort of blessed uh, life and uh, have really been blessed over the last several years in building my business. And I just have a personal belief of paying it forward and uh, and giving as much away as I can. So if there's uh, anyone in the audience that just wants to connect uh, to ask a question or two or have 30 minutes of a conversation, I'm always up for those as well. And I always like to say, when you abuse me, I'll let you know that I'm going to start to send you an invoice. But most of the time, it doesn't get to that point. So, <laughs> Well, that's awesome. Uh, Greg, I want to thank you very much for spending some time with us today. That was a great conversation. And uh, we'll hope that you have an enjoyable uh, rest of the summer and you get some time off. Same to you. Same to you and uh, everyone in the audience as well. It's been a pleasure, uh, Dave. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, we'll we'll see you next time. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us live. And uh, we'll see you again soon. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Head over to my blog site at davidcbarnett.com. You'll find hundreds of articles and videos all for free. You'll find links to my books and online courses, and you can sign up for my email list and get emails covering topics that interest you and be notified of new videos. Special thanks go to today's video sponsor, Mark Willis of Lake Growth Financial. Mark helps people better manage their personal wealth and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and I've gotten lots of positive feedback from people I've worked with over the years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find a playlist of all the interviews I've done with Mark and to learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up to arrange a conversation about what this solution might look like for you. 
This episode of Small Business and Deal Making is brought to you by smbpodcastnetwork.com. The network is a collection of podcasts and shows from around the internet, which focus on bringing you interviews with amazing guests who share actionable advice, ideas, and information for small and medium-sized business owners and entrepreneurs. Visit www.smbpodcastnetwork.com to find more great shows and easily subscribe to be notified of new episodes. It's a great way to discover quality content. And if you've discovered us today via the network, then I hope you're enjoying the show and will consider subscribing directly so you never miss any one of our great episodes.